this teaching series called The Seven Churches of Revelation. Now, I'm going to put up a picture in, in a second here. It's right there on that sermon series thing. Can we put that picture up? There we go. Y'all remember this? Does anybody remember one of these? Y'all remember? Right? It's the famous gold star poster from elementary school, right? I don't know. Do they even still use these things in school uh, anymore, right? How many of you used to get a gold star next to your name? <laughs> Some of y'all are repenting for the things you did in elementary school right now. <laughs> I just want to let you know that if you raise your hand, you were the kids that were despised in class. <laughs> I rarely got a gold star next to my name. I was talkative. I was a mischievous child. I remember at one point, I literally sharpened the pencil. I put it on a chair, and I waited for one of the students to sit on it. I was not a good kid in school, right? Rather than get gold stars next to my name in the gold star poster, I would usually get check marks next to my name on the chalkboard. Right? And I always felt like a little less than a person because I never got that gold star. Right? After all, that gold star represented success. Getting the gold star, it meant that you had worked hard. It meant that you were special. That meant that you were better than everyone else. See, we, we like to be recognized for our hard work. We like to be recognized for our successes. There's nothing wrong with that. Working hard and succeeding is a good thing. But what happens when succeeding and achieving become too important? What happens when doing good and important things begin to define who we are in an unhealthy way? Right? And, and, and isn't this true? Don't we strap our identity to these things? Oh, come on now. Who would you be if they took your children away from you? Because you strapped your identity to your children. Who would you be if they took your spouse from you because you've strapped your identity to your spouse? Who would you be if you retired from work? There's so many people who retire from work and they lose who they are completely. They have to rediscover themselves because their entire identity was strapped to something successful. What happens when you are severed from those things? Right? It's the student who had a meltdown because they got a 99 on their report card. They felt like they failed as a person because they were less than perfect. It's the workaholic who can't spend enough time at the office and then brings home their work with them. They're wound up, they're tense, they're impossible to live with. So what does it look like in the life of a Christian when doing good things becomes too important? What does it look like in the life of a church when doing good things becomes the focus rather than a vibrant and healthy relationship with God. So the past several weeks, we've been studying these messages that God sent to these seven churches in the book of Revelation. Today, we're going to take a look at two churches who made the mistake that I was referring to earlier. They are the churches of Thyatira and Sardis. And we find these messages to these two churches in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Here's what God says to the church in Thyatira. It's Revelation chapter 2, verse 19. He says this, he says, I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Wow, that sounds really good, right? That sounds pretty awesome. Then to the church in Sardis, he says this, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, he says, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive. Time out. Pretend that you didn't see that next part. 
it's easy to see that these two churches, they were not lazy. They were churches that were busy doing lots of stuff. They had community outreaches, ministries, programs, bake sales, services every single night. In fact, they did so much in their community that they had a reputation for being the hip church, the church that was alive, the church that was rocking it. If the churches in Thyatira and Sardis were churches of today, they would be the talk of the entire world. After all, they were doing great things for Jesus. However, it's interesting to know what Jesus says to both of them. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Here's what he says to Thyatira. He says, I know, can we, the, yeah, there we go, good. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love. I've seen your faith. I've seen your service and your patient endurance. I can see your constant improvement and all these things. But I have this complaint against you. And to Sardis, he says, I know all the things that you do, Revelation 3, 1, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. In both situations, it's apparent that God is saying, it's not your doing that I have a problem with. It seems that God is, is, is saying this, all of your doing isn't making up for the fact that, insert their sin. These churches were making the mistake that many churches and individual Christians make today. They were getting caught up in doing a lot of great things for God, but they were neglecting being part of a relationship with God. See, we're a society that's focused on doing. We naturally reward accomplishment. And that's certainly a good thing. We, we naturally recognize accomplished leaders, leaders in their field, and that's not all a bad thing. However, when a Christian becomes solely focused on doing things for God, rather than being a child of God, it can become dangerous. It's dangerous when you forget that you were designed for relationship. When God created human beings, it was for relationship. He wanted to show his love to them and allow them to love him back. It wasn't because God was feeling overwhelmed one day with his godly duties and he somehow needed somebody to come alongside him and give him a hand. He didn't create Adam and Eve, then give them a list of chores to perform. Instead, God would walk daily in the garden just being with them. When Adam and Eve sinned and broke the bond of relationship with God, it was that broken relationship that broke God's heart. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on a cross to pay for the price of that sin, all so that we could each and everyone be brought back into right relationship with God. It was for relationship. That was the purpose. Somewhere along the line, though, we fall into the trap of, of doing. It's almost as if we think God has this gold star system set up in heaven it's as if we believe that the more we do for him the more special we will become to him and, and I can hear you thinking well but pastor Tom don't you want me to do good things pastor doesn't want me to be a lazy Christian does he now, obviously, I, I want to share with you, God is interested in you doing great things for him. It's found throughout all of scripture, right? Ephesians chapter 2, 10 says, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Jesus so that we can good, good, do good deeds that he planned for us to do long ago, right? James says, James chapter 2, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So God doesn't want us to be lazy. He wants us sharing our faith. He wants us giving to the poor. He wants us helping the help. He wants us ministering to others. However, we can see from the message to Thyatira and Cyrus that, and Sardis that it is possible for us to have an unhealthy focus on doing things. 
while we neglect holiness, while we neglect a healthy connection to God. Sadly, many of us Christians find ourselves in doing mode too often. We say things like, work like everything depends on you, but pray like everything depends on God. And then we work like everything depends on us, and we do not pray like anything depends on God. We plan to pray a lot, right? We set prayer goals, Bible reading goals, lots of spiritual goals in our life. And I wonder if the goal setting itself doesn't feed our doing mindset and end up defeating the purpose of relationship. We end up patting ourselves on the back for having the guts to set a high goal. And if we don't achieve it, that is okay. But even if we do achieve it, we look at it as our achievement. God, give me a gold star for that one. I showed up to serve today. Not only did I show up, I actually showed up to serve on time. Get me a gold star. God, I read my Bible verse for the week. Give me a gold star. God, I went on Facebook and I saw somebody else posted a Bible verse. I read it. Give me the gold star, Lord. See, we have developed a phrase even for this concept of gold star. Old school Christians used to call it adding another jewel to your crown. You volunteer to serve in the nursery, you change a dirty diaper, woo, added another gold jewel to my crown. You give an extra $100 to missions, whoa, I added another jewel to my crown. You help your disabled neighbor mow their lawn and you added another jewel to your crown. And we, we kind of get that concept because Jesus and scripture references the crown of life and the crown of righteousness. But it's as if we have this idea that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a crowd of people and God is going to say, come forward. You are my special one. This guy, you see this guy right here? He was always doing great stuff. Clap for him because I'm going to stick a giant crown on his head. And we think that somehow if we do more, then God will give us that gold star. Maybe God will give us a little bit of an extra blessing. And we're going to become God's teacher's pet. In actuality, much of the time, the reason you do so much is really in order to feed your own sense of accomplishment. Your self-worth can easily get wrapped up in your doing rather than your being. That can happen for an individual. That can happen for a church. And it's possible that you might be so busy trying to get those jewels on your crown that you might end up missing the kingdom of God altogether. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23. This is... The most scary verse in all of scripture. Hands down. If you want to look at the scariest verse in all of scripture, it's not the book of Revelation. It's not the demons coming out of the sea. It's not the beast coming out of the sea. This is the scariest verse in all of scripture. Ready? This is Jesus talking. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Oh, doing. And in your name drive out demons? More doing. And in your name perform many miracles, more doing. But look at verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That is the scariest verse. This is not a feel-good message this morning. There is a reason I can speak so clearly to this. I have been there. There is no other place that is easier to fall into this trap than to be in ministry. Because somehow you think that because you're a minister of the gospel and you're reading the scriptures, sometimes you need a pause. I found myself reading the scriptures just to get a message out of them. Not so that God can actually speak to me personally in my life through them. There's a dangerous place where you think that just because you work for the gospel that somehow you're still in right relationship with God. 
I looked a lot like a lot of these churches here, Thyatira and Cyrus. So what does that look like? How do you know if you're in danger of falling into that doing mentality? Well, number one is this. You tolerate sin. Revelation chapter 20, verse 21 says this. It says, but I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. See, the church at Thyatira was tolerating. This was likely a literal woman, but there was a spirit behind her, this Old Testament thing. There's this story in the Old Testament about this evil, seditious, seductive queen called Jezebel. And Jezebel was this spirit that literally would come against and kill the prophets of God. And, I, and I've learned this. She had a husband. And her husband was somebody who acquiesced to every single thing that she wanted. And approved and gave approval of everything. His name was Ahab. And I've come to learn this from being a pastor in the church for a long time. A Jezebel can't, spirit cannot exist in the church unless there is an Ahab that acquiesces to everything she wants. And Jezebel is not just for females, it's for males too. I've seen it rise up. This is scary. They were tolerating this woman who was teaching a false doctrine, leading other people into sexual sin, telling them, hey, it's okay. The culture has adapted. The times have caught up. No problem. Keep on doing what you're doing, even though it's against God's word. And many people were joining in, and others were just allowing it to go on and on. And everybody see this happen in the church, and nobody is addressing what is going on in the church. They didn't see it as that big of a deal. Often this is one of the first things that happen when you become enamored with doing. You tolerate sin that you would have previously rejected. Right? Your television, your movie habits shift. The things that you used to be offended by, now it's not that big of a deal for you to watch. You stare a little bit longer. You start going into websites and learning how to delete your search history. You allow yourself to have that inappropriate conversation with one of your coworkers because what's a little harm in a little conversation? And you tolerate and you excuse sin in your life when you are living with a doing mentality. And the thought is God knows how hard I have been working for him. And he understands I just need to blow off a little bit of steam here. This is not going to affect my relationship with him. Sadly, it always does, right? Share with you last week. When you tolerate sin, your relationship with God always suffers. Number two is this. How do you know that you have a doing mentality? You're too busy to pray. Prayer is our lifeline to God. It is the connection to God that we depend on. In fact, our doing actually flows out of our prayer life. It needs to flow out of our intimacy with God. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our prayer life is what feeds our spirit. It's what empowers us to do things for the sake of the gospel. Apart from that connection to God and Jesus, what ends up happening is we substitute your ministry for your intimacy with God. And that's the third thing. Sardis and Thyatira made this mistake, and often you do too. You convince yourself that as long as you stay busy doing ministry, that God understands you don't have time to pray. So you're focused on doing ministry, and you don't have time to be intimately connected to God. 
And when you do that, what happens? You'll find the next verse, John chapter 15, verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burn. Let me tell you, that's exactly what happened to me. Through a series of events, God revealed to me that I had long depended on my own intellect, my energy, my talent, my plans of accomplishment, and what I thought were his objectives for my life. And as a result, I found myself in a position where I nearly destroyed my life and my ministry and my family. I was the branch that had shriveled up and withered. I wasn't even connected to the vine anymore. Hear me out. There is nothing wrong with working hard and accomplishing big things for God. But all of my pushing and striving had cut me off from the life that I so desperately needed. And it had been a long time since I had actually stopped to ask God, is this what you want me to do today? Why do we so often put our connection to God and intimacy with God on the back burner in order to pursue what we think are his purposes? Have we just gotten too busy? Or do we somewhere deep inside believe that we have what it takes and that we can save ourselves on our own? After all, I've just been a Christian for years. I've got this thing down. I can set my life in autopilot for a little while. Here's the fourth thing. I believe I'm responsible for my own success. When you believe that you deserve that jewel in your crown, there's a problem. When you begin to give yourself the gold star on your own, there's a problem. See, success is a dangerous thing if you don't have the spiritual depth to handle it. Come on now. If your position has exceeded your character, you're in a dangerous place. If you believe that you're responsible for your own accomplishments, that lives being changed, that the growth in your ministry, that you touching people's hearts, if you think that that's you that's doing that, then it's only a short time before you get to the final warning sign. Number five is this. Your reputation becomes more important than transformation. The church at Sardis, they had a great reputation. People knew of them. People knew of their accomplishments. Revelation 3.1, remember? I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you're, you're dead. Can I share with you something? I could get up here Sunday after Sunday, and I could fool you. You can come into church Sunday after Sunday and week after week, Bible study after Bible study, and you can fool me. But God is never fooled. It's easy to build a reputation, but it's difficult to allow God to be in charge of your own transformation. As foolish as this sounds, we do this, right? You would rather look changed rather than be changed. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> you know how to raise your hand in worship, right, when the chorus climaxes. <laughs> you know what your go-to Bible verses are to sound like you've actually been reading Scripture consistently. You've figured out how to delete your browsing history on your computer so nobody knows what you've been looking at. <laughs> you've rehearsed your responses when a pastor asks you, how have you been doing in this area in your life? How have you been doing? I haven't seen you for a while. You have the response already rehearsed because you know that the, the question is coming. One of the most dangerous warning signs is when you stop growing in your relationship with God and begin focusing all your efforts on protecting the reputation that you've built. 
Perhaps you are here this morning and you realize that you are in the same boat as Sardis and Thyatira. And you see these warning signs in your life and you say, I don't want this, Pastor Tom. I don't want this for my life. How do I change? So I want to refer you to the clear words of scripture. What does God say to the church in Sardis? Revelation chapter 3 verse 2. The very first thing that he says to them is what? Wake up. You're asleep. You're asleep at the wheel. You don't even realize what's going down. Wake up. Stop fooling yourself into thinking this addiction to doing in this life is what God intended for you. This isn't what God has meant for you. Wake up. So how do you wake up? Number one, listen to the Spirit. At the end of the messages to each one of these churches in the book of Revelation, you have this common theme. It's the same way each one of these letters and anyone who is willing should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. See, the Spirit of God is speaking to you even right now. He brought you here today for this purpose. He wants you back. He doesn't want your work. He wants you. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you this morning. And when you hear his voice, ask God for strength. Revelation 3.2, when God speaks to the church, he says, Strengthen what remains, for even what is left is almost dead. Where are you weak? Prayer, your thought life, worship, your passion, your kindness, your gentleness, your humility. Ask God for strength. You can't do this on your own. You need his strength. And God wants to strengthen you. He wants to pour out his power on you. Ask him. Allow him to strengthen what remains in your life. As the old song says, his strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can't carry off. Ask God for strength. Then this, Revelation 3.3. He says this. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and hold fast to it. Not just remember the good old days, but the lessons that you learn in the process. Remember that when you were sick, God taught you about healing. Remember when you are lonely God taught you about his constant presence. Remember when you were down to your last dime, God taught you about his provision. Remember when you were lost in sin, God taught you about his grace and forgiveness. The same God who taught you before is the same God that you serve today. And every now and then we need to be reminded who God is and what God can do in us, not just through us. Finally, if you're truly ready to wake up, you need to ask God to forgive you, and you need to be ready to move forward. Christians call this repentance. Asking God to forgive you is part of the process of waking up. You've been going through the motions. You've been on autopilot. You've allowed your passion to be for God, to be replaced with your passion. You allowed your passion to do for God, to be replaced with the passion to just be be in God and be relation, in relationship with God. So what do you need to do? Now that you've realized it, you need to repent. Say goodbye to that old way of thinking. That thought that focuses on doing all the time instead of being. Repent. Leave it behind. Move forward in your life. If you do, then you'll really discover the life that tr God truly has for you. 
And you'll receive the same reward that God revealed to the church in Sardis. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, and this is where I'll leave you with. He says, all who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Come on now. I don't know about you, but that's where we win. We win in belonging. We win in belonging to Christ. We win in belonging to his body. Not in doing life on our own. Not in being on our own. Not in doing so much stuff in our life. We win on belonging to Jesus. This is the reward. That we are his. And he is ours. And we get to benefit from that relationship with him. So I want to call you today, church family. Call you to analyze your life. And look and see, have I been doing too much in my life that I have not had time to really think about my relationship with God and how connected I am to God? Whether or not I'm even in right relationship with Him. I don't want you to get lost in the shuffle of life. And if there's anywhere in the world that it's difficult to get lost, that it's easy rather to get lost in the shuffle of life, it's here in the tri-state area. Where all you're expected is to do and do and do and do all the time. This is your invitation to simply be for Jesus. To be in relationship and belong to Jesus.